So welcome back to Jones Take on the Chosen. We are in season three and episode one. And as I mentioned, this is different than before when I was doing it all at once. Even sometimes every day we did with season one, we did it every single day. These will be a little bit more spaced out because we're going to do it together as the season unfolds. So I'm just concentrating today on episode one, which we already have kind of talked about um, in the chat on the YouTube chat, that it's hard to remember when season or episode one ended and episode two started. So I'm going to do my best. I think I have it right in my notes. But what I'm going to do today is I am not going to walk through the episode scene by scene as much as treat the characters as much as possible, treat the characters as we saw them in episode one. So episode one and two was a lot of, um, I think, setting the stage for the rest of the season. And I just kind of want to go through the episode. I mean, we're going to start with the beginning, but I want to go through the episode character wise rather than just go through scene by scene and talk about each scene. So a lot of people are sharing in the chat what surprised about episode one. I agree. Matthew, stop getting on my nerves as well, Loretta. And I, I think there's a reason for that. And um, we'll talk about that. Um, the clapping, I'm assuming someone said they, they were surprised by the clapping. Is that the clapping for the sermon? Um, I have mixed feelings about that as well. But I liked the sermon better than I thought I was going to, actually. So we're going to start with the beginning before. So those of you who saw it in the theater, I'm assuming that's everybody so far. People later will have watched it streaming who are listening or watching this. Um, but most of us saw it in the theater that are watching it now. And we started with the Matt Marr song. I have to admit, I was a little reluctant to go to the theater and I didn't know how much I'd have to sit through before the actual episode started. I am not like Dallas. I do not like previews. Just I'm there for the movie. Give me the movie. So, but I actually really liked the Matt Marr song. I wasn't sure what I would think about it. I wasn't sure like, okay, you know, like CCM just isn't my favorite genre. I've gotten more into it in um, probably the last 20 years of my life than I was early on. But um, the Matt Marr song, what I really liked was just seeing the encounters with Jesus all together, the dramatic encounters and, and the conversions all lumped together, I think was really powerful just to kind of recap. And then we got the recap and I thought that was really helpful. Not everybody's seen every episode seven times. <laughs> So it was really good just to get that recap. I still get chills. I don't know about you. I still get chills. Like even watching the recap, some of the scenes, I still was getting chills. And so I was, I think that's really impressive to a time where, um, you know, that these scenes are still moving us, whether it was in the Matt Marr song or whether, um, you know, in the recap that these scenes are still moving, I think really says a lot about the the way the chosen is created, the, the the artistic value of the chosen, the gospel message itself, right? That these scenes continue to move us because the truth is real. The truth is moving. And I thought it was interesting. You could kind of tell now I saw it twice in the theaters. Um, you could kind of tell by the recap, what, what plot lines we were going to get in these first two episodes. Have you ever watched a TV show where they're like previously on this is us. And then you could tell by what scenes they're showing you, you know what we're going to talk about in the episode. And that's how I think this was. That made sense, right? They had to bring 
some things back to us, like whether it was Matthew's family or, you know, we had to see these things to get us ready. So I thought it was interesting that by the recap, you could kind of tell where we're going in some of these plot lines. Okay, so when we start the episode, we go backwards. So Dallas has done this in the past, right? We see when we see a date on the screen, we want to take note of it because if you don't notice that the screen says 8024, you're very confused why Matthew's still a tax collector, right? Now, I think this scene was really important. If we talk about why we don't feel <laughs> why we don't dislike Matthew. A lot of people love Matthew and um you know, we all have our favorite characters. Matthew has always gotten kind of on my nerves, but I think this scene was very important to go backwards and see this with his family because I think it's important not just to feel sorry for Matthew, but to see where everyone else is coming from. And so without this scene, it's easy to feel sorry for Matthew. It's easy to think that, you know, that his father's in the wrong for disowning him. And I think this scene really helped us see his father's perspective. So I think it was an important scene to go backwards. Was anybody else surprised that there was another Roman with him? Like, where was Gaius? You like my thematic coffee cup? Um, for those of you listening on Spotify, my coffee cup says Jerusalem. So I thought it was interesting that there was another Roman with him. And then I was like, where's Gaius? But then I thought, do we need a different Roman? Because if you notice in the recap, Gaius asks him about like why his father disowned him. And I wonder if we needed another Roman to show that like Gaius didn't know the family situation. That that's my guess. Um, so I thought it was shocking that when his father said, don't call me Abba, Matthew actually genuinely seems surprised. And uh, I think it kind of plays into kind of his, it may be his special needs and maybe kind of his lack of, of awareness of the situations. Um, but when he said, don't call me Abba, Matthew seemed genuinely surprised. And I really kind of wanted to hit him in the face. So, um, there's that his father talking about sitting Shiva. Um, I think it, it was, it kind of under, you might've understood what he meant, but to sit Shiva, um, Shiva's from the Hebrew seven, you sit for seven days after someone is, um, after someone dies. And so it's not actually found in Jewish law. But it's in Jewish tradition, and you you have people referencing it even today that you sit in mourning for seven days. And so when his father says this, you know, it's not in the law; it is in the scriptures. We see it in scripture after the death of Jacob, in Genesis fifty ten. Um, in Genesis fifty ten, we see Joseph essentially sitting Shiva. Like they he they don't say that, but he mourns his father for seven days. We also see it in Job two when Job loses everything his friends sit with him and mourn for seven days so it's biblical even if it's not in the law so when his father says this it indicating that his son has died to him um that he has no son so it's very dramatic um christy i that's interesting you're right that gaius's job was security rather than a henchman and that guy with matthew really was kind of shaking him down wasn't he so you're right maybe it wasn't actually the roman that was protecting matthew like Gaius, it was a different Roman with a different job. That's a good point. Um, there's a whole other discussion of whether we would even have Roman soldiers in Capernaum, but I will save that for next week. Um, okay, so let's get to the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't know whether we would see the Sermon on the Mount because we saw a little bit of it at the end of season two. I didn't even know if we would even see it. Um, and I'm glad that we did 
And I, so overall, I think Jonathan's performance was phenomenal. Um, And why do I say that? Because he's preaching these very familiar words, familiar, these, these, these phrases that we've heard, um, phrases that in a sense have become almost cliche to us. You know, the Sermon on the Mount in many ways has become just sayings that we are so familiar with, it doesn't shock us anymore. And that's one thing I really liked about this episode was it reminded us of how shocking the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is shocking. And what you have to do is you have to take yourself out of your Judeo-Christian or really Christian um, worldview that even if you are, have not been a practicing Christian, you most of us have still grown up in this country. And whether this country likes it or not, it's been founded by Christian principles. And so when we have things like love your neighbor, you know, love anybody, we don't think anything of it, right? Because we've been raised in such a Christian, um, with a Christian worldview. But the Sermon on the Mount is shocking, jarring, it's revolutionary. And I think they did a good job later, and we'll talk about it, of, of pointing that out. Um, the way Jonathan delivered it, he was preaching this sermon and I was really moved. Um, he's not just reciting a script. I think he did a really good job, not just saying these familiar words, not just preaching these words that have become so familiar to us, but really saying them with emotion. And one of the ways they did this well, I think was to show different people. If you notice at different points in the sermon, they show different people that would be affected by those sayings. So um, you have like reconcile, you know, with your neighbor, you show Matthew, which of course we're going to see Matthew do that. But like Matthew is processing that. When they talk about not being anxious, Andrew's processing it. When they're talking about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, Simon's Simon Z is processing it, right? So they they zeroed in on the people who would struggle with different parts of this of this sermon. Love your enemy. They circled in. They uh, the filmmakers, of course, zeroed in on Atticus, um, our Roman spy, and Simon Peter as well. Um, I have to say, during the the Sermon on the Mount, this is just a funny Joni thing that I know you all come for the funny Joni commentary. So during the Sermon on the Mount, I was really distracted by the costumes because I had seen so much behind the scenes of the actors and the the volunteers who had come. Um, I got really distracted by their costumes and their clothing. And I found myself being like, is that a bed sheet on that guy's head? Like, would they have had stripes like that? Like, and I was getting distracted. And at that very moment, Jesus said, don't worry about clothing and what you are to wear. I thought it was really funny. Um, it was just really beautiful. My mom just said the cinematography was outstanding. I agree. Like again and again, I think the chosen surprises me for being what it is and delivering what it does. Um, I thought the cinematography was beautiful. I think they would have been a little bit more on a hill. That's just me. I mean, he was on a hill, but um, I think just like, I know, I mean, I've been to the, out of Beatitudes. I know where it is. Um, but I, I let that pass. Like, that's not a big deal. That's not as big of a deal as, you know, the Utah mountains in the background, like last season that I was complaining about. Um, I forget who said this. I had it in my, my notes that, that Yusuf said it. Um, and maybe he did, 
but uh whoever said why did they take up a collection and then i think um judas's i mean several people kind of mentioned it at, at certain points i'm thinking it was judas's friend he would that would have been in character for him to say anyway i wrote down in my notes why did they take up a collection it sounds like some bishops i know <laughs> right i mean we all know people who uh would have that that uh, thought. Why did we take up a collection? Look at all the money we could have gotten. Um, I love at the end, so just kind of wrapping up the actual Sermon on the Mount. So as it ends, Gaius is just there speechless, right? And there's that really funny scene. And they do this. I like the way they do things to make us laugh, right? And this scene is a good example of it. But it's also really good character insight and plot forwarding. Um, so Gaius is speechless, right? He's standing there and Atticus tries to have a conversation with him, right? And uh, he's just speechless. And Atticus is like, good talk. That prompts laughs from us. Um, but it also reminds us of what I just said. Like, that speech would have been strange. That speech would have been moving. That speech would have been confusing. The Sermon on the Mount would have been shocking. It was revolutionary. The stuff he was saying was strange. And I like how they began to show that, which we take for granted. They showed it in people's reactions. Um, before I go on quickly, I just want to say, if you can give a thumbs up to this video, just like it on YouTube. I hate to ask for that, but that really helps other people find it. And if you don't subscribe, subscribe to the channel. But there are a lot of people out there now that are watching The Chosen, and there are a lot of Catholics who are watching The Chosen, and I want the Catholics who are, I want everyone to watch this, right? This isn't just for Catholics, but because I do it, I do um, approach it with a Catholic point of view, I know a lot of Catholics who would benefit from these conversations. So if you could like it, that will help other people find this. Um, Gaius' slow conversion is my favorite thing. I totally agree, Christy. I love what we're going to see with Gaius. Um, we got some hints, whether it was in episode one or episode two, we got some hints that there's some backstory about Gaius that we don't know about, right? Do you remember what Atticus says, like murders and secrets, like kind of threatening to blackmail him almost like murders? Like, what do we not know about Gaius? So I love Gaius. He's actually become one of my favorite characters. And I love where I, I just want to see where we're going with this. Um, Barbara dropped the name Joanna, and we're going to get there because I don't know whether you're dropping that because that was surprising to you, but we're going to get to Joanna quickly. Don't worry. Um, I love Mary feeding Jesus after the sermon. I love what a mother she is. I just love Mary's role in, uh, Mother Mary's role in this, in this series. When Matthew's asking questions about the sermon afterwards, I think this is really important. Um, so he's asking questions and he's kind of prodding and Jesus just wants to eat, right? This is so real, right? He just wants to eat. Um, he says to Jesus, I'll say these things again. And, um, oh, Barbara, Joanna said the thing about the collection. You're right. She is one of the people that said something. You're right. You're right. Um, but, so Matthew's asking questions and Jesus says, Jesus says, I'll, I'll say these things again. And I think that's a really, really important point. You know, so often when scripture scholars take apart the gospels, especially scripture scholars who are not reading the gospels in faith, they attempt to dissect the Gospels and they act like Jesus said all of these things once, like that there was one Sermon on the Mount. And this is the only time he said these things. Um, and so they try to like reconcile like Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. When did he say this? When did he do this? You know, and when did he say preach? When did he teach the Our Father? And I just want to shake him and say, like, don't you think he said these things a lot? 
Like there wasn't one Sermon on the Mount. Yes, there was one Sermon on the Mount. Like we remember, like we have a church built on this site for a reason. People remember, remember that really powerful homily that Jesus gave on this place, right? I, I believe that. But I do not believe this is the only time he ever would have preached the Beatitudes. Um, in fact, that it doesn't make sense because we see them in different versions in the Gospels. Well, that's because he said these things again and again and again. So I think it's really important um, when the Dallas puts that in there because, you know, especially if we're, we're taking like these are the only things that Jesus said. Well, that's ridiculous. Right. John tells us Jesus said a lot of things that he could not write. So so Jesus said a lot of things and he preached a lot of things and he said these things again and again and again. And I think that was an important point. Um, I'll say these again, right? Um, he didn't just say these things once. And another thing that really drove that home, did you notice that when they're praying the Our Father, the apostles are praying it with him? Now, we saw Jesus teaching the Our Father in season one, episode three, to the children. But we know in the Gospels, his, his, his apostles asked him, like, teach us how to pray. They would have prayed these prayers. They would have like so like some of the stuff he said might have been surprising to the apostles, but some of the stuff he preached to the crowds, he had already taught to the apostles. So I loved when you saw the apostles mouthing the words to the, our father. Why? Because it showed like he spent time with these guys, more time than we've seen in the chosen. And he taught them this prayer and they prayed it together. And now like they prayed it together and now they're praying it with him. They already know it. And I think that was a really minor thing that you could miss. That was a really important point. Okay, so let's get into some of the apostles. Let's get into some of these characters. The first one person I want to talk about is Judas. So when Judas comes, so we met Judas at the end of season two. When Judas comes to Jesus, I think it was so powerful when he says, Shalom, Jesus, Judas. That line, I got chills. Shalom, Judas. What's he saying? Peace, Judas. Um, really, 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 um, really important. How does Jude, how does uh, Dallas portray Judas? So he Judas is portrayed here, we see, as an educated Jew. Um, you know, he mentioned several times that he has studied, that he could be a rabbi, right? He studied in rabbinical school. I think that's an interesting interpretation of Judas. And my thought, now again, I don't know anything more than you all know. Um, and actually, I haven't read, I haven't, read a lot. I haven't watched like any of the behind the scenes. So you all might know more than I know. I'm trying to like watch everything with a really clean slate. So I haven't watched any of the interviews with Dallas or anything. My thought is that where we're going with Judas is he will have a typical educated understanding of the Messiah. Um, that this educated idea of what the Messiah is going to be based on the time, based on that time of expectation based on the scriptures, but, uh, you know, obviously not a fulfilled understanding of the scriptures, not a complete understanding of the Old Testament. My thought is what we're going to see is Judas is going to think he knows about the Messiah, think he knows what's happening. Jesus is going to break that, right? Jesus is going to break his brain when it comes to who the Messiah is. He's going to have a hard time because he's so educated. He's going to be have a have, really have a hard time accepting what Jesus is doing. And my thought is, in the end, he's going to hand Jesus over because he thinks by handing Jesus over, he's going to force Jesus's hand to show his kingship. Um, that's a common interpretation of Judas, that Judas um, was actually trying to help the cause by handing Jesus over, by forcing Jesus to make a move. You see it in some um, 
so, not so much some scripture scholarship, but some, um, you know, plays and dramatic understandings. So that's my thought that I don't know. That's just a, a Joni supposition that he's going to have a very educated idea of the Messiah. He's going to want to force Jesus's hand and hand him over so that Jesus can show his glory and it's going to backfire on him. Um, I was really worried. I have a lot of thoughts about Judas. I was really worried that, um, Ooh, Christy. Okay. I'm going to get to that comment, Christy. So I was really worried that Jesus would not say, follow me. Um, that it would just be Judas kind of choosing to follow him himself and that Jesus wouldn't actually call Judas. And that would really annoy me. So what do we do about Jesus calling Judas? And Christy, you bring up a really good point. Did Jesus know about Judas all along? That feels a little like Jesus setting him up. So it's a mystery, right? It's a mystery of, it goes into how do we reconcile God's divine will with our free will? And that's a huge discussion that probably goes beyond the scope of this podcast or this YouTube video. How do we reconcile Jesus or God knowing what's happening? He, you know, already being present, he's outside of time, right? So he knows, God knows, um, but how does that not limit Judas's free will in handing Jesus over? Um, so I'll kind of unpack my thoughts of it. Um, I I was really worried that Judas would, again, Judas wouldn't be called, that Jesus wouldn't say, follow me. And I don't want us to be comforted by the idea that Jesus didn't choose Judas. I think it could be very comforting for us to think, well, Jesus didn't really choose Judas. He just started following him. And now wonder he handed him over, right? Jesus chose Judas. He called him to be one of the 12. And that's hard to wrap our minds around because I think Judas, I think Jesus knew. Um, as God. Now we know that Jesus, when he accepts a human nature, he accepts some limitations of the human nature. And so he, different theologians, whether they have a high Christology or a low Christology, will talk about how much Jesus knew. So a very high Christology would say like, Jesus was somehow omniscient at all times. Well, I, you know, that's a really, really high Christology. A really low Christology would say Jesus didn't know anything that he restricted himself completely. Um, again, we're getting into some theology here that I wasn't intending to, but we don't actually know how much Jesus limited himself as human. Um, when he took on a human nature, how much did he limit his intellect? How much did he choose to limit himself um, and, and trust in the father? We know he prayed to the father. We know he looked to the father. So some of that, and this is a lot, if you're really interested in this, you should read um, um, von Balthasar, because von Balthasar talks a lot about this. And we talked, actually, we talked about it in, in earlier seasons of The Chosen, where, like, um, you know, Jesus looks to the Father. I think we talked about it in The Calling of Matthew, because, like, von Balthasar will say, like, Jesus prays to, to hear the Father's voice. Because he's limited himself, he's always looking to the Father to, you know, for, for that knowledge. Um, so did Jesus know when he chose Judas? Um, I think he did. Um, I don't know. Is Judas necessary for the end result? Loretta asks. Um, Judas, no, I mean, that's another really tricky question. We're going to get a really deep theology because 
like, is he necessary? Jesus could have saved us, but chose not to save us away from the cross. Like, this is really deep theology that has, like, the church has struggled with for a lot. Um, But mom, you point out a good point. She says, did anyone see sadness in Jesus's eyes when he was talking to Judas? Jonathan was phenomenal in this scene because you could absolutely see the grieving. I mean, I think you could see in Jonathan's eyes that Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do. Um, it's hard. So if Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him and chose him anyway, that's hard to understand. And it's hard to wrap our minds around. And I think that's important. It's important for us to struggle with that. And there are lots of ways that we could comfort ourselves with Judas, that we could kind of rationalize away Judas. And I don't want to do that. So, um, so before I get more into that, I just kind of want to continue through that scene. Um, Jesus says, you know, I have the same command as other rabbis, be like me. That was a really great Jewish insight that when you took a rabbi, when, when, when you followed a rabbi, your goal was to be like that rabbi. Your goal was to imitate that rabbi. You would ask that rabbi, teach me how to pray. And that rabbi would teach you how to pray the way he prayed. And so you, as a disciple, you really became like the rabbi. And so I thought, I loved that Jewish insight. Um, but we know that it's going to be a lot harder. It's a really, like, that's what we're called to do, right? We're called to be like Jesus. That's a lot different than just being like a, a human rabbi, right? So I love that he told Judas that. Um, Judas says, like, I'm ready to make sacrifices. I'm accustomed to loss. Now, we know his father's dead based on his conversation with his sister. I'm intrigued to see where this goes, um, where G- Judas's backstory that we don't really know yet plays into it. I love the way Dallas does that. So I'm super excited to see where all this goes. Um, Jesus says, we'll see when Judas says, I can do hard things. Um, I can do hard things. And Jesus says, we'll see. Can you accept the Messiah different than the one you studied? Right. Can you accept a Messiah different from the one you've expected or that you've wanted? You know, um, so I think you can tell Jesus knows Jonathan is that good. And then he says, follow me again. This is hard to understand. But it's good that it's hard to understand. And I'll explain. So I was watching it with friends in the theater. And one of my friends leaned over and said that Judas is too cute. He doesn't look evil enough. And that's the point, right? Um, I think that's the point, And I like it. We want to hate Judas from the start. We read the scriptures and we think we want, we want Judas to be the evil henchman that has music playing when he walks in, right? Um, we want him to be bad and we want him to so clearly be the enemy, but he's not. And that's hard, right? Like in this moment, he's called to be one of the 12. He is sent out. Now we're getting ahead to episode, uh, episode two, but he is sent out to baptize. He is sent out to cure. People were baptized by Judas. And and that's really important. And it's comforting for us to separate out the black hats and the white hats and to make it all tidy, right? All apparent of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Judas is a bad guy from the start. Amen, Barbara, in the chat. Yes, any of us could be him. And that's why it, we want to comfort ourselves by saying, well, at least Ju- Judas is the bad guy. I wouldn't do that. We want to make it all tidy. But Judas is us. We're Judas. We're Judas every time we sin. And so I've really watched this with kind of held breath because I don't want 
I want Judas to be portrayed the way I want it to be portrayed, which is a loving father follower of Christ who is weak and lets sin build up in his life and lets temptation build up and 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 I, I so to take a like to compare it like my problem so I don't know how many of you went to Oprah Amigal for the Passion Play. But the Passion Play, it's every 10 years. It happened this year because of the, the plague of 2020. Um, so in the Passion Play, the way they depicted Pilate was this obviously bad guy with a vendetta against Jesus. Um, Pilate was Hitler, essentially, in the Passion Play this year. He had this vendetta against Jesus, and he was clearly bad, and he wanted Jesus dead. And I have a huge problem with that because that's not who Pilate was. Pilate was a weak man. He was a weak man who made a grievous, grievous sin, who sinned terribly out of weakness. And that's who we are too. And it's comforting to us to to put these black hats and white hats because we can put ourselves in the white hat camp. But when we come face to face with Judas and Pilate sinning out of weakness, out of lots of venial sins building up into a big mortal sin, that's us. And that's uncomfortable. So those are my thoughts about Judas. Um, I think it was great to see his sister to help us remember, like he's a real person with friends. He's a real person with family. But you're beginning to see some character um, insight. You know, Judas's sister said, it's never not about money with you. That's good character development because as much as we need to like Judas right now, his character doesn't change overnight either. Um, We're going to see a progress of, I think, of weakness. And we know from scripture that he steals from the money bag. And so we know he has a temptation towards greed. Um, Yes, absolutely. Um, So this is, yes, I'm looking at the chat. And Bobby points out, um, by the end of the series, we might even sympathize a little with him. And I think that's, that's hard for us to do. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Um, I loved Judas's observation that um, most ministries are inefficient. That got a laugh out of me. I really like that. Um, ministries are efficient, like financial, inefficient financially. I really like that. Um, Judas says, if he's the anointed one, this is with a conversation with his sister. Because again, I'm, I'm going to treat these character wise, not go chronologically through the episode. So in his conversation with his sister, he said, if he is the anointed one, he will not be killed. And so again, that sh- shows, I think, that he has this education. But that education might prevent him from accepting the real Messiah, right? Um, And will he turn Jesus over thinking he's not going to die, he's going to conquer, right? So I think we're getting some of this character development. I think some people I I saw um, in other places caught the irony of that his sister doesn't want his name to be forgotten. Like his sister really doesn't want the family name to be forgotten. It won't. It'll just be remembered for a, a lot worse. He says something interesting. He says, Adonai has set me aside for a reason. And I don't know, I don't know what Dallas is doing, going to do with this. Um, but I don't want him being depicted kind of the way Loretta just brought up in the chat as simply a necessary instrument, like a robot in God's plan. Um, I'm not saying that by that comment, that's what Dallas is doing, but Again, the character Judas is really difficult to grapple with, with free will, and he has a choice. Like God calls him, Jesus calls him to be Saint Judas. And I say this all the time in the talks I give. You know, Jesus called Judas to be Saint Judas. He chose otherwise. So I want to make sure there's a choice. Um, 
and not that Adonai set him aside to be the bad guy. I don't think that's what Dallas was saying with that, but I just want to be careful of that. Okay, so after the sermon, so I, I wanted to deal with Judas. Um, going back to the sermon, after the sermon, the, uh, the blessing that Jesus prays over the apostles is one of the earliest blessing formula that we find in the scriptures. And it's a solemn blessing dismissing the people at the close of prayer at the synagogue, which I thought was really beautiful the way, um, I, I love the way Dallas weaves in this scripture. Um, so this is, if you're taking notes, um, is number six, 22 to 27. We have the Lord teaching Moses this blessing to give to Aaron, that Aaron and the priests, it's a priestly blessing that the priests would pray over the people at the dismissal, um, at the close of prayer, of the of their prayers. So number six, 22 to 27, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you kindly and give you peace. So shall they invoke my name upon the Israelites and I will bless him, bless them. Um, so I thought it was really beautiful that he wove this in because this is a blessing that would have been used at the time and actually still is used. Um, you might still hear a priest say that at the end of mass, which is kind of cool. Um, it's still used in obviously in our Jewish brothers and sisters um, worship. It's the first reading for January 1st. So we're going to hear it in a few weeks. And the fathers of the church actually recall, like talk about, so the early fathers of the church talk about this blessing as being a threefold blessing foreshadowing then the sign of the cross, right? That even then there's this threefold idea of God, right? Um, not that God is one, not that God is three, but that God is one in three persons. The Lord bless you. The Lord let his face shine upon you. The Lord look upon you kindly. So I thought that that was kind of cool. We still have, the, we even have this Trinity um, in the Old Testament. So after the sermon, I asked in the chat, so um, if you if you have your Bibles, because I, I love the way Dallas obviously is using scripture and all this. And in this podcast, I want to us to use scripture as well. I want you to turn to eight, uh, Luke 8, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 8, verses 2 to 3. So in the chat at the beginning, before we started, I asked if anything surprised anybody. And something surprised me, pleasantly surprised me. I didn't see this coming at all. And I love when that happens because I, I mean, I think I know the scriptures pretty well, um, but I love it when, when Dallas surprises me. So if you are, have your scriptures, turn to Luke 8, um, verses 2 to 3, and it's about Jesus proclaiming Jesus's public ministry. And we see the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided them out of their means. Here's Joanna. Um, I, when she came up, I did not know who she was. Um, I know Joanna. I know the scriptures. I know that, the, you know, that, that has always struck me, like, oh, the wife of Herod's household manager is providing for Jesus, but I didn't really give it much thought. And I love that he has brought her into the story because she's there. And I think we so often skip over things like this without really thinking like, oh, the wife of Chusa. Wait, wait, what? Who? Like how? <laughs> um, and, and this like really puts in front of our faces that somebody from Herod's court is now following Jesus and providing for him, giving him, you know, means, providing him out of their means, right? Straight out of scripture. So 
it's so easy for us to read these scripture verses and not really think about them. And now all of a sudden this woman's there and who is this, right? Um, it's spoiler, she's not going away. In Luke's gospel, Luke 24, 10, she proclaims the resurrection with Mary Magdalene. She's at the tomb and goes back to the apostles in the upper room. So she's not going away. She is here to stay. And I love it. Um, another interesting thing to see what comes of her um, tradition. So you notice here, it says um, some women who have been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. So is she going to be healed by Christ? You know, is something going to happen in the coming episodes where she falls sick and she's healed? Um, we don't know. Another healing that might be interesting. So in John 4, 46 to 53, Jesus heals a royal official son in Cana. Again, we often just skip over these stories without thinking of them. So he's back in Cana. He heals a royal official son and the royal official's household all comes to follow Jesus. We don't get his name in the gospel, but in some ancient Syrian and Nabataean writings, so that the Nabataeans lived in Petra nearby, um, in ancient Syrian and Nabataean writings, they indicate that this man was named Chusa. Isn't that awesome? So I don't know what Dallas is going to do with it, but there's a lot of directions he could take this that would all be really authentic. Um, so is this woman's son going to be healed by Jesus? We're going to have to wait and see. But I loved it. Um, I love Joanna's presence. Um, she gives them a chatouche. So chatouche um, is actually, it's a, it's a really wealthy, um, it's a really rich wool. It's actually illegal to own now. It's um, the wool from the wild Tibetan antelope. And now the cloth is illegal because the, the animals are wild. And so to, to, to get their wool, you have to kill them. So you can't even own chatouche. Um, but it would have been the finest wool. It's very, very, very fine, um, very thin, but really warm. And so this is a real garment um, that Dallas has worked into the script. And so she gives it to them so they could sell this for a lot of money. I love how suspicious the women are of her because I think it's so believable. It's so believable that these women would be that, you know, Rayma and um, Tamar and Mary, Mary less so. She's not as suspicious, but they're all like, they're super jealous. Don't you think? Like later when they're talking about her, I just think it's a really normal female conversation that they're like protective of Jesus. They're protective of the apostles. They're jealous. They're suspicious. They leap to conclusions. Like Rayma's like, oh, she's deceptive. I thought that was so female and so spot on. Um, she takes Andrew to Machiris. And I actually have a picture of here. So for those of you watching and those of you listening on Spotify, you can't see the picture. Um, but this picture is present day Machiris. So it's in present day Jordan. Um, obviously, you can see nothing is there. But on top of this hill would have been a fortress. And actually, you can, you can kind of see ridges around um, there. We, you can still see that there's actually prison cells built into the side of this fortress, into the side of this mountain. So that's Machiris. There's present day Machiris. This is where um, she takes him. Why? Because Josephus, right? So Josephus, that um, Jewish Roman historian at the fall of Jerusalem, he has written, uh, he wrote that he, um, this was the location of the imprisonment and um, beheading of John the Baptist. So it would have been a Hasmonean palace on top of there. Herod would have spent some time there. And it's um, tradition that this is where John the Baptist died. So that's where she takes him. Um, 
I love how Jesus is interested, just like John is as well. They're interested in Joanna. So Andrew's thinking about John, but Jesus asks about her. And I think that is important for us in evangelization that um, th- this like this idea of evangelization, it's not just about getting numbers. It's not just about wowing people, but it's about the people, right? And so he he asks, how are you? Like, what did you think, right? Um, I thought that was really important. So John has sent her. We still don't know if John understands the mission of Jesus. One way scholars interpret Luke 7, um, in Luke 7, John sends messengers. This is before, you know, John sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah or should we expect another? And some people interpret this as John's not quite sure. Like he's kind of confused. Like why isn't Jesus doing what he's thinking he should be doing? Um, so John, do, does John completely understand? We don't know. Like he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but does he completely understand Jesus's mission? We don't know. Scripture scholars don't know. We don't know. Um, but I love when he told Andrew, you've got a new rabbi now. You've got a new rabbi now. The scene with John the Baptist in prison had lots of good moments. Um, you know, Andrew, stop worrying about John. Stop worrying about me. John basically says, like, you have a new rabbi. And um, this is why my friend Loretta says that John is the greatest leader in all of history, because he knows when to pass on, right? He knows when to pass on his disciples to another. Like, it's not time for him to lead anymore. Great leaders know when to step down. And John passes Andrew on to um, Jesus. Joanna says, like, everything he said was backwards and it was strange and there were strange images. It's another reminder to us that the Sermon on the Mount was so weird. Um, liberty to captives, opening of prisons. That's the proclamation of the year of Jubilee, which I think we're going to get later in this season when Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. So I'm going to wait to talk about Jubilees later. Um, but I don't know, like, does John know this isn't going to help him? Like this, this prison isn't going to be open for him. I don't know. Like, it's, it's interesting to just see, like, to sit with this, that these people don't know the end of the story. And I think that's important. Um, I love the observation. I think John makes it that there's always something for you, just for you in what Jesus says. There's always something just for you in what Jesus says. I think John said that. And that's a really important point. And I think that's what the filmmakers were showing in the sermon when they were zeroing in on those different people with the different like things they were grappling with. And I think we have to remember that because, again, these stories can become so familiar. And that's one of the beautiful things The Chosen is doing for people is it's waking us up out of our stupor, out of our, I know these stories, I know these people. It's it's helping us see them with fresh eyes. That's so important. Um, and so to remember every time you open scripture, every time you open scripture, there's always something just for you. That these scriptures were written for you, that these accounts of Jesus's life, that Jesus's words are personal for you is so important for us when we become so familiar with the scriptures, when they become these familiar words, what is there today for you? John wants Andrew to go home and listen to Jesus and do what he says. And that's the mission of John, right? That is the mission of John. Go listen to Jesus and do what he said. Um, and it's a beautiful reminder to us in Advent, which is really the season of John, right? So um, a few other things to wrap up. Again, I'm, I'm looking at the characters and not necessarily the, the ski, you know, we're not going in order. So a few of the other characters I wanted to draw 
from um, Barnaby. I love Barnaby. And I thought his, his quote that the sermon was a little long was totally in character. And I love when people get like really zero in and get the character so perfect that that's totally something Barnaby would say, isn't it? I love the gratitude in these in these episodes. Um, Peter thanking Andrew, right? He thanks Andrew. He even thanks John for bringing him to Jesus. I'm a big St. Andrew fan. Uh, yesterday was his feast day, November 30th. We, and just to think that like we owe Andrew for Peter, um, that Andrew's always in the back. Like he's always bringing people to Jesus. He's totally Jesus's PR guy when in the scriptures, right? He's bringing Greeks to Jesus. He's bringing a boy with fish to Jesus. He's bringing Peter to Jesus. And so often we talk about Peter and James and John, and we don't talk about Andrew. I have a whole Bible study about encountering Christ and a whole um, session of it is just on Andrew. So I loved that gratitude for that Peter has for Andrew. Um, and just that, 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 that scene between the brothers. Again, I think a lot of these, um, Episode one and two is really just setting the scene. It's reminding us of characters. It's setting the scene. Like we're about to get a ton more. So at times I thought the episodes kind of dragged. Um, everybody came out of the theater that I talked to and was like, was it that amazing? And I had to remember like, these are just beginning scenes. So if I thought they dragged at times, you know, we saw it in episode one of the very first episode of season one. We have to be patient with some of these, these storylines. Um, and they're, 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 they're going to pay off in the end. One storyline I'm not a fan of are, is, is Thomas and Rayma. I mean, I might be, I might be on, I don't know. What do you all think? I'd love to see in the chat. Um, maybe people love Thomas and Rayma. I, I'm really annoyed by Thomas and I don't know why. Um, I just think that that storyline really dragged in this, in these episodes. And, um, I have more thoughts next episode because there's more next episode and so I'll share more but just to say like I'm not a big fan of that storyline and I I just think it drags at times the Eden and Peter reunion um again I have I have things to say that that crop up in the second episode I think um I think what I want to say about Peter and Eden are is more in the second episode um maybe not I'm gonna say it now I might as well say it twice so one thing about Peter and Eden, I think this shows us, whether Dallas wants it to or not, I think their storyline shows us why Jesus called unmarried men. Um, we know that Peter was married, and we've talked about this in the earlier episodes. Um, we know Peter was married. We know um, from the scriptures that, um, you know, the priests were married. We know from historical tradition priests were married. Um, but the majority of the time we see them either being unmarried or, um, forsaking marital relations for the sake of the kingdom. Um, that's a historical, that's historical evidence and that's practice of the church. So even today in the East, priests can marry, but they forego marital relations before offering sacrifice. Okay. That's why we don't have daily mass and divine liturgy. Um, this celibacy is seen as, um, is in the monastic community in the East because you're living in community. Um, diocesan priests in the East are allowed to marry because they, they, sorry, 
married men are allowed to be ordained diocesan priests because they recognize the need for community in the East and that celibacy is meant for community. So that's why monastics are living in celibate, live celibate lives and diocesan priests tend to not in the East. Priests never marry. You have to be married before you're ordained. Um, and so Peter was married. We know Peter was married. But there are certain reasons that they asked Jesus, like, we gave up wives. Um, they are giving up the normal lives of a married man. And whether Dallas wants to say that with, these, with this difficult, I don't know. I don't know what he's, where he's going with this. We know that he doesn't, um, he's not Catholic. He doesn't believe in the, 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 necessary for, the necessity for celibacy. Um, so I'm conflicted about their relationship. I love Eden, but I think it shows whether he wants it to or not, why Jesus called uh, mostly unmarried men, because it was going to put a strain on this relationship. We don't know whether Peter's wife was alive when he was called. Um, but if he, if, if she was, he gave up that relationship in some way. I'm not saying they never had sex, um, but he did give up that relationship in some way as married priests do today. So I struggle with that storyline. Um, and I don't know whether it was in this episode or next. And I'll, I'll just say it twice. The phrase, the, the conversation they had about getting ready to start their family was a total anachronistic phrase that completely doesn't understand Jewish culture or the time. That was very frustrating. Um, very frustrating for me because while the Romans had ways of practicing birth control, the Romans practiced abortion, the Romans had practiced infanticide, the Jews did not. And they wouldn't have had, like, that wouldn't have even been in their mind. When, when a Jew got married, they got married to have a baby. They got married to have babies. Marriage is for families. And it's a complete modern take on marriage that you would then begin to start a family. In the Jewish mind, especially at the time of Christ, when you got married, you were starting a family. Um, I mean, even today, I think even if you are childless, you are still a family. I think we have to get rid of this idea that like couples and then family, you are a family. And for Peter to say that every Jew would have gotten married expecting to start a family. And if they didn't start a family, it was actually seen, I mean, there's a reason that barrenness and infertility is seen as, as, as a hardship in the Old Testament. So what I think he meant to convey with that is that Eden and Peter are making plans that aren't going to fit with Peter's new life. Um, and I understand that they wanted, he wanted to convey that Eden's going to struggle with this. Peter and Eden are ready to start their life, and Jesus' call is going to disrupt that. But I just, I, that was a very, very troubling phrase. Um, I think it could have been said very differently. So I probably will get back on that soapbox in the next episode as well. Um, going back through the apostles, James and John, why is James being depicted as out of it? I, I didn't get that. Um, he's like out of the loop and like clueless, big James. And I, I didn't, was that part of his character already? And I missed that. I didn't really get that storyline. Um, are we just supposed to see like, that maybe John is becoming friends with other apostles and James isn't. I, I don't know. I didn't understand where that's going. 
I'm okay with it. I just don't understand. I did want cinnamon cakes. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I suddenly had a craving. I've never even had a cinnamon cake. I don't even know what a cinnamon cake is, and I wanted it. Um, so Jairus, another character we're seeing. Um, so we know, if you know the scriptures, you know where Jairus is going, right? He's a synagogue official. We know what's going to happen, right? His daughter's going to be raised from the dead. But this plot's really intriguing. I really don't know what he's doing with this character. They were two fairly long scenes, but it's clearly setting something up. And I have total faith in Dallas because he's so good at doing that. As I mentioned, like the, the first three episodes of the actual show in season one were just setting things up. So I totally trust him where that's going. Um, I just, I, we'll see where that goes. I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with Jairus. But he's definitely in these episodes setting a lot up. And Yusuf gives Jairus the letter for Nicodemus unsealed. But I think just have patience. I'm, I'm totally good with that. Um, as we wrap up, because we're almost done with this, see, this episode, I like that Andrew apologized to Mary. Um, I like how they weaved it together with Matthew going to his dad. That idea that like we're called to reconcile big things and little things. I think it'd be really easy for us to kind of just brush off like, oh, I don't have to apologize for that because she's already forgotten it or it wasn't a big deal. And the fact that Andrew had it on his heart to go apologize, I think was really important and really beautiful, really shows us what we are to do as Christians. Um, and Christy mentioned in the chat at the very beginning that she was taken, like she was surprised that Mary didn't say, I forgive you. And I think that was one of those things that it would have been really easy to write that in the script. I forgive you, right? That would have been a very easy script write. But I think it was much more in character that she was so taken aback because she's never had someone forgive her. So if I was writing it, I probably would write, I forgive you, you know, because that was, but when we really put ourselves in Mary's place, she's never had someone apologize to her. And so to, um, to say, I forgive you, I think was really, was like to 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 like not just say oh I forgive you but to really process it I think was really powerful because she's never had anybody say I'm sorry but now the Christian way of life is different and it just shows us that as Christians we're called to live differently we are called to do things that people don't expect we're called to to change the the customs of 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 the world which I think is really um, powerful I do think she forgave him Christy says did he did she not forgive him or did she just not know how to do it. I think she forgave him. She probably had already kind of forgiven him, maybe. Um, I think we're going to see Mary kind of be a very mature Christian through this this season. Um, and then I, what I think is the, the um, what do I want to say, the cliffhanger, I think, at the end of the episode, if I remember correctly, was Matthew's father opening the door and calling him son. And so that's kind of the cliffhanger, I believe. I Again, I forgot to take notes of when episode two ended. I just took all these notes and then started, continued taking notes. So I think that was the cliffhanger. So we will talk about that in the next episode. Um, so I'm going to look through your comments. Um, if there are any questions, throw it, throw them in now. Um, everybody's agreeing about Jesus breaking up a marriage. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, like, in a sense, he does break up marriages. I mean, that sounds really bad, but, you know, he calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to... Um, choose him over worldly relations. So I, I just don't know what, I don't exactly know what they're doing here. Um, yeah. So 
Well, good. Well, thank you all. This was really fun. Um, I did cry at the Matthew family scene. And I'm going to talk about the Matthew family scene in the next episode because I think most of it came in episode two. So if I'm wrong and I'm ending this in the wrong place, I'm sorry. But next time I think we'll pick up with some Gaius talk. We'll pick up with Matthew. There's a lot happening in episode two. I haven't announced what I'm going to do episode two yet. I'm toying with the idea of waiting so that people who are watching it streaming can watch it. But um, I'll probably be announcing in the next week or so when we're going to do episode two. And we'll see how the season unfolds. So, again, if you can, like the video. I know that sounds really silly. It sounds really self-serving. But it does help other people find this. Please tell people who you know who like The Chosen or are watching The Chosen. Tell them about this. Again, we're, the audio is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be live on YouTube. You can watch it late on YouTube. But it helps people, I think, um, just get a different point of view of the episodes and come talk about it. I love your conversations in the chat. So that's really important for you. I'd love seeing and like, even though we can't talk in person, that really um, is important to me, your comments in the chat. So I feel like I'm not just talking at you, but I'm talking with you. So thanks so much, everyone. That was season three, episode one, Joan's Sake on the Chosen. And we'll be back. I'll see you when we do the next episode. So God bless.